I'd like you to turn this morning to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to let the children be dismissed this morning for junior church. It's appropriate this morning that we ended our worship time with that song. Christ be the center of our lives, be the place we fix our eyes. Last Sunday morning, we described 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6 as a portrait of Christ. It really is an extended definition, if you will, of the Christ-like characteristics and qualities of love. So when you're looking at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6, you are, in fact, looking at a portrait of Jesus Christ. Scott, can you close that door for us? Just once the kids are in there, we'll start hearing it. So as you move your way through this text, my hope is that you, as you look at the details of these verses, that you will go away saying, okay, if I want to be like Christ, these are the qualities that I should be actively pursuing in my daily life. These are the virtues that will make me more like the Savior. With this caveat, okay, and I'll say this at the end, I'll say it at the beginning. These are not decisions that we simply make. Okay, they are directions that we move in, knowing that as we move in that direction, the Spirit of God will honor our obedience and fill us with the capacity to become who we could never be on our own. So I don't want you to take the list and say, I need to be, I need to will through my flesh, determined by my flesh, to be a different person. No, what you need to do is pursue Christ-like virtues persistently with a humility that says, God, I can't do this. I can read that list. I could say, I wish my wife had a husband like that. I wish my kids had a dad like that. I wish the church I pastor had a pastor like that, but I can't do it on my own. I want that. And in the wanting, we are participating in the means. As we pray and say, God, cultivate, grow in my heart these attributes. I believe that as we make that prayer, the Spirit of God will come and begin to enable within us desires, characteristics, and virtues that are not naturally occurring in our flesh. No more is that conviction, that need for the help of the Spirit, true than it is in regards to the topic that we will look at this morning. Second half of verse 13. Defining love. And, and just notice how, how Paul says that love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. I'll just finish out this text and just get the rounded off idea. It is not rude or self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Now, if I this morning was going to pick something out of that list of virtues, whether negatively or positively, and say, this one has the capacity to destroy the effect of all of the other good virtues and pursuits in my life, I would say that the one I would pick out of the list is pride. It is deadly. It is slippery. It's hard to get our arms around. It's hard to kill in our lives. And yet it is persistently present. This text is exalting love as the context in which church life should happen. Okay? Love is the context in which church life should happen. One of the evidences of love in the context of the body of Christ is the attribute or virtue of humility. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to encourage you towards humility by doing two things. 
the first thing I want to do is ask you the question, why should you intentionally fight fervently against pride? Why should you do that? Because if I don't have reasons, I'm not going to resist. So I want to lay out reasons for why we should resist it. Then I want to ask this question. How can I begin to cultivate an attitude or spirit of humility in my daily life? How can I pursue the virtue that will bless everyone in my sphere of influence? Okay, so first let's look at this topic of pride. Now you notice in the text that there's a couplet. It does not boast, it is not proud. Now the word boast, and I just wanted to see if you can get kind of the essence of this word. It is uh, defining one who talks a lot or is a bit of a windbag. It, it carries with it the ideas of being ostentatious or showy. Okay, everything always ends up being about them when you're with them and talking to them. Okay, they just have a tendency, and let's not jettison this and say, well, that's certainly not me. It's easy to say, that's not me. It's harder to say, you know, there are parts of that that are true about me. There's a tendency to draw attention to oneself or to be applause-seeking in my life. All right, the second word that he uses, don't, is not proud, means it doesn't, puff out its chest like a pair of bellows. Okay? It, it doesn't carry an attitude of arrogance and therefore independent. It is not flattered with its own capacities. About two months ago, uh, during turkey season, which I think Tom was about two months ago. Is that about right? Okay. I was uh, going up over Montana Mountain. I was trying to think the other day, uh, the other day where was I going? I remember going the, the Harmony Brascos Road, I think it's the road that crosses the top of the mountain. And I was driving past a field, and there was a flock of turkeys relatively close to the road. And I, I, I'm not a hunter, so I don't know that it's uh, interaction time for turkeys, okay? So I see this one turkey just, like, fanned out, okay? And I'm like, that is like, like I mean, what's going on over there, right? Just a couple of, this big, I mean, beautiful, beautiful. Just standing there. I was drive, stop, looking out, beep horn. Guess what? I couldn't get his attention. Because in his pomp of the moment, he was making a declaration. He was putting on a show that he was the top turkey amongst all the turkeys there. And he had his, if you will, his harem, his protected group of people. He was making a display. He was puffed up, okay, to demonstrate his glory, his attributes, okay? That's the idea of the word that's used here. It, it, it in, inordinately attracts attention to itself in a way that it becomes self-sufficient and independent, which Scripture defines as deadly. Why? Because the nature of the Christian life, the nature of human experience is interactive. But our pride wants to drive us to independence. Now, the question I want to ask is, why should I, why should you this morning, as you listen to this discussion about love, it's not proud, it doesn't puff itself up, why should you make a decision to enter into a fight that will be lifelong. Because I can guarantee you, this is not one that will be killed with one blow of the sword. Pride is something that is persistent in our lives. We have to root it out to understand what it is so that we can begin to fight against it in our lives. Andrew Murray said it this way. He said, let us admit that there is nothing so natural in man Let's pray. Nothing so insidious and hidden from our sight, meaning 
Other people can see it in our lives, but we can't see it in our own. Other people are always the ones that are proud or being stubborn in a discussion or a debate with the mate. Right? Everybody else is the problem. It's insidious and hidden from our sight. Nothing so difficult and dangerous as pride. When you read through the Bible, you learn very quickly that pride has had devastating effects on humanity. Why should I fight against it? Well, it's slippery, it's tricky, it's damaging when it is present in our lives. And let me just give you five thoughts as to why. I just want to try to list five reasons why you should fight against pride. Number one is this. Pride is at the root of the original sin and therefore of all sin. You go back to Isaiah chapter 14. I'll just I'll read this for you. I want to make you turn back there. Isaiah 14, if you want to write these verses down. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. The fall of Lucifer, who becomes Satan. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the top of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Folks, you understand this? The original sin. And as one writer says, the root of all sin started with pride. So I should fight against it because it is the, it is the root of all sin and of original sin. John Stott said it this way. He said, it is more than the first of the deadly sins. It is the essence of all sin. It is the roots or it is at the root of all sin and needs to be dealt with in a radical way pride tends to focus on what i deserve my happiness my desires in the in the context of pleasures it justifies lust in the context of marriage it justifies divorce and disagreements pride is insidious and needs to be dealt with second thought is this Pride blinds us to the depths of our own sinfulness. It clouds vision. It's like when I was looking at that turkey and thinking, I'm, I'm talking. It's very hard to get close to a turkey. You have to deceive them and call them in. But when pride was present, I could get pretty close. Right? Caught up in making a display in a show for some of the other uh, female turkeys. Guess what? Very distracted and vulnerable. That's how pride works. Second thought I want to share with you is this. It blinds me to the depths of my own sinfulness. When pride is present, I am no longer teachable. When pride is present, I tend to lean on my own performance. Luke chapter 18. Do you remember the Pharisee who comes into the temple with the publican? He stands before God, lifts up his arms, and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he begins to list all of the positive qualities in his life, all of the obedience that he has offered God. And God says that man went to a place of condemnation rather than the other who was willing to own his sin. Pride blinds me to my sin. Pride, in, in that sense of blinding, will cause me to blame shift. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3? The first sin was the sin of pride. Satan said to Eve, Eve, if you partake of this fruit, you'll be like God. Does that sound familiar? 
Does that sound a little bit like Isaiah 14? When Satan says, I will be like the Most High God. I will exalt myself. I will sit on his throne. Eve, you can be like God. And what happens? Eve caves into the temptation to pride. Adam caves into the temptation to pride. And then God comes walking in the cool of the day. And he says, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Adam's response is, hey, we hit ourselves because we knew that we were naked. Who told you you were naked, Adam? Well, and here's what happens, right? In pride, I don't want to own my sin. In pride, I want to shift the blame to someone else. I want to find a scapegoat. And what does Adam say? Remember the woman you made? She gave me to eat and I partook. Right? What happens? Pride, when we enter into it, it blinds us to things that we desperately need to see in our lives. Okay? And it has, in that sense, it has devastating consequences in our lives. It has the tendency to minimize one's own faults and magnify the faults of others. Is this not particularly true in the context of our homes? When I am proud, guess what? I don't want to admit that I'm the cause of any problems in the context of my home. When brothers and sisters are proud and testy with each other, guess what? Somebody else is always the one who did it first. Or I had it first. Okay, and I continues to emerge. And pride is the center, if you will, of this blindness that brings devastating consequences into our lives. It keeps us from admitting our own sin. It keeps us from seeking the help that we so desperately need. I've had the occasion in my life of backing into a couple people's cars. Not a pleasant experience. I've done it, I think, three times. I've been driving 30-some years, so I've done, it, I've done it three times. Same person twice in one case. Each time they got a new car. Okay? What's the first thing that runs through your mind when you back into something? Yeah, oops is one. Okay? Well, what's the first question? If it happens in your driveway, what's the first question? Yeah. It's a, in my prior, why did they park there? This happened to me here about six months ago in the parking lot. I'm backing out of my spot over in the corner. If you don't know, it's my spot. It's my spot, that far one out there. Okay? I'm backing out, and Mark's Flummerfeld's car, and park, instead of parking straight behind me where I could see it in the mirrors, he parked off to the side, one spot. What's going on in my mind? I don't want to admit that I did that. Mark, let's cover this up and deal with this in private. Nobody has to know this happened. Right? That, our pride blinds us, okay, to our mistakes. It wants to shift the blame. It doesn't want to take responsibility. If you find that tendency in yourself, please, please be aware of it. Do you always seek to justify your sinful responses and attitudes based upon how other people approached you? I had a long day at work or I'm dealing with financial pressure. Instead of doing that, humility owns sin. It doesn't try to justify it, eliminate it, minimize it. It owns it. And that's what love does also. Another thing that pride does is this. It takes credit for the work and gifts of God. It takes pride in what it accomplishes, not realizing that its accomplishments are a result of God-given gifts. Turn back, if you will, just for context, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And you see, does this issue emerge in the context of, of 1 Corinthians, was there a tendency on the part of people to take credit for the works and gifts of God? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. 
Paul says, now, brother, I have applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. Okay, pride was a deep-rooted problem in the church in Corinth. Showy use of gifts, seeking the applause of others. Verse 7, he says, for what makes you different from anyone else? What really differentiates between you? I mean, at one level, you're all part of the body of Christ. You are together in Christ. What makes you different? And then he says this, and what do you have that you did not receive? Okay, what capacity in the context of your life do you have that you did not receive? And then he says, and if you received it, why do you boast? Why do you become proud as if you did not receive it? Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father above. James chapter 1 and verse 17, right? See, pride tries to take credit for the accomplishments, for the things that we do in the power of God. A humble person is always going to desire to exalt the grace and work of God. And you notice in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's emphasis in regard to spiritual gifts, they are these capacities that the church has are manifestations of the Spirit through believers for the common good. Verse 11, all these are worked by one and the same Spirit. He gives to each one just as he determines. So Paul is baffled as to why people can be proud of their spiritual gifts when they came from God. He's mystified that people are willing to take credit for God-given capacities when they're used and say, I did that. Instead of saying, no, you know what? God gave me a capacity. I unleashed that capacity in the power of God. Look what God did. Okay, the next thought is this. It not only takes credit for the works and gifts of God, but it always puts itself first. Pride always puts itself first. Think of Jesus and the disciples. Okay? Was the sin of pride in seeking to put self first an issue that they wrestled with? We're going through the Gospel of Mark in a couple different settings within our church family. It is perhaps one of the most shocking things that you will read as you work your way through Scripture. You see Jesus talk about his death burial and resurrection. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to give myself. I'm going to pursue Jerusalem for your sake. I'm going to give my life a ransom for many. And in the next moment, what are the disciples capable of doing? They're capable of doing the same thing that you hear your kids doing in the other room. I had it first. It's mine. Mommy gave me that. You had it before. You've had it longer. Right? What are they doing? I wonder which one of us is greatest. Remember, on a couple occasions, Jesus says, hey, by the way, what were you guys talking about along the way? And they are silenced by a shame that comes from pride. Folks, if, if I harbor pride in my life, I'm going to tell you, this is the bottom line. I cannot love my wife as I should. I can't. Now, if you pull me aside and you say, Pastor Tim, do you want to love Ruth? Do you want Ruth to have a godly husband? You know what my answer is? Yes. Yes. Does she? When I'm humble, she does. When I'm proud, she doesn't. Because when I'm proud, I'm concerned about my needs. Puffed up, caught up in my own world, my own concerns. They trump hers. Jesus says to the disciples, if you want to be 
great in the kingdom of God, which is what they were talking about, wasn't it? Isn't that what they were pursuing? Who's first? Who's most important? Who's most effective? He says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, become servant of all. Be willing to crucify yourself. Put your flesh to death. Pride puts self first. C.J. Mahaney puts it this way. He says, pride takes on innumerable, uncountable forms, but it has always one end. And it's one end. It's always self-glorification. I mean, in the end, I want to look okay. In the end, I want a good explanation for why I hit that car. All right? And you get your teenagers start driving and something happens. It is fascinating how many idiots there are out there on the road. All right? Your teenage daughter has something happen. Teenage son has something happen. And you ask, well, well, well they, it's not, you know what that, I was going too fast. Had one funny instance, since all three of my daughters drive, you'll never be able to guess who this is. One funny instance on a day where there was a little bit of snow and ice on the road. Now, keep a safe distance, right? I mean, that, that, that's what you're supposed to do. Okay, in this situation, one of my daughters wasn't keeping a safe distance, in my estimation. I mean, the car in front of her stopped, and she hit her brakes because she had to, I had to slam on my brakes because of how close the car was. But you weren't following too close, I thought. Okay, in her private, I don't want to take responsibility for what happened. Now, if something good happened, yeah, I did that. Yes. But if something bad like that, do you ever find this in yourself, this incredible capacity to avoid responsibility for negative things? Why? We're concerned about how do I look? It's insidious, as Andrew Murray says. It's hidden. It's mysterious. It's hard to uncover. The Spirit of God has to show you this stuff. And its end is always self-glorification. Now, if you go to the mirror and say to yourself, today I am going to be proud. I am going to seek to put myself on the throne. I'm going to seek to glorify myself. I'm fairly certain that none of you start your day that way. You don't even have to make a choice to make yourself first. You don't have to make a choice to self-promote and to self-glorify. It's naturally occurring in my flesh. It's the direction I tend to move in. Self-justification rather than personal responsibility. But when pride takes root in my life, what happens? I start to find out that others become second, and I'm always first. Love seeks the good of the community as a whole. Ultimately, this is what happens if pride is present in your life. And I think if for any other reason, this is the reason why you should seek to kill pride in your life. Pride ultimately robs us of God's power. And, and this next statement you may not like, but I, I, just, I think I can clearly justify this from Scripture. Okay? My pride robs me of God's power and it invites His active opposition. Okay? It robs me of the power of God. I'm left on my own. And it invites His active opposition in my life. Okay, when I'm determined to go my own way and I say, God, I don't care what you think, I'm going to go do this. I'm inviting the active opposition of God in my life. And I am robbed of the power of God. Okay, that is, for every Christian, a devastating place to be and should strike the fear of God in our hearts. Will you turn with me to James chapter 4 because we're going to look at a few verses there. James chapter 4 and verse 6. 
I want you to see this passage of Scripture, and then we're going to come back to it in a minute. James 4 and verse 6. Let's start there. The text says, but he gives us more grace. What a blessed statement, isn't it? He gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud. He is, and this word is in the present tense, he is in active opposition to Tim Hoff when Tim Hoff is functioning in his flesh. When I am operating for my benefit or for my self-glorification. God says, if you're my child and you move in that direction, I will actively come against you. That's a fearful statement. What is he saying? He will not tolerate pride in the life of his children. He wants to bring us to a place of humility so that he can maximize our usefulness for his glory. That is why he gives more grace. Because he so desires to use us. Proverbs 6, verse 16 says, There are six things that God hates. Seven are an abomination. The first one on the list, which puts it at an ultimate position, is a proud look. An arrogance that says, I am above, better than, more useful than those in my sphere of influence. I am morally superior. I am more effective at whatever gift I have that I use. Okay, pride moves in that awful direction. And when we move in that awful direction, God takes an active, immediate, and constant stance against us until that sin is broken. Because that sin will breed in me an independence that does not need and that does not seek the support of God and others. Okay, I mean, that's the ultimate end is I end up on my own in my Christian experience. That is a fearful place for us to be. C.S. Lewis said, Pride is one sin of which no man in the world is free and of which hardly any people ever imagine they are guilty themselves. Is that not so true? That's what I'm saying to you. You don't get up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, okay, today John Tadona is choosing to be a proud man. But I'm sure at times that John Tadona will wrestle with pride just like I did. You don't get up and make that declaration. So C.S. Lewis's words help us very much. It is the, the one sin of which no man in the world is free and of which hardly any people ever imagine themselves guilty. Why? That's how it tends to hide. He also called it the mother of all evils. Will you take this test? Ask yourself the question, am I proud? Am I proud? Do you take immediate and personal responsibility for your sin? Or do you blame it on someone in your sphere of influence, your mate, your children, a co-worker, the policeman, the person who... Do you take immediate, full personal responsibility for your mistakes, for your misjudgments? Or is there always an explanation as to why that happened that way? Do you always have to be right? Are you teachable, instructable? Can people speak into your lives? Do you seek their advice? Do you need others at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship? Pride is the greatest enemy we face and humility is our greatest friend. It's, it's, when you're out driving and you get lost, I, I, I really am one of those very typical, I, wanna, I just want to keep going because eventually I'm going to find a way out of this. Okay? On the flip side of that, okay, 
the times that you stop and ask for direction, just you just humble yourself and you say, you know what? I have no idea where I am. This happened to me a couple weeks ago. I have no idea where I am. And you get clear direction and you're moving in the right direction. You save time. You didn't, uh, um, you know, in, in an inordinate way, bring complication to the life of the person you're supposed to meet with. You stopped and you asked. And when you get back in your car and drive away, what are you saying to yourself? You're saying to yourself, you know what? I am, I'm glad I stopped and asked. I'm glad I didn't do what I normally do and waste a lot of time. Okay? Humility is our greatest friend. Pride, our greatest enemy. Okay? And if we can, as Christians, get this right, understand that pride is destructive in our lives. It invites the active opposition of God. It blinds me to my sin. It causes me to place blame on everybody around me. Okay? If we can get that and say, okay, if, if pride is the one side, then what I want to do is I want to move over towards the side of humility because humility will become for every Christian a great friend. How can I cultivate it? And I just want to list for you some of the positive attributes that will emerge if you begin to pursue a God-honoring, a God-dependent humility in your life. How do, I, how do I cultivate it and what will the results of that be in my life? First thought is this. Humility gives credit or glory to God for all good things. If anything good happens, if something productive comes out of my life, and then what our, our inclination is going to be to say, if we're humble, it's going to say, God, thank you for using me in that way. Thank you for accomplishing that through this individual's life, through my life, through our church, through the family, whatever it is. Humility wants to give credit to God for everything, whereas pride wants to take credit for everything. Remember 1 Corinthians 3, because Paul goes after this issue? Paul had effective ministry. Apollos had effective ministry. Kephas had effective ministry in the city of Corinth, right? They all had great effect. Paul said this. Paul said, one sows, another waters, another reaps, but who gives the increase? God. Okay, Paul's saying, look, we all had a part in this. This was a team effort. So don't, don't, don't give credit to us as individuals. Give glory to God. Because he understood that everything positive that had happened through his life was only because he was redeemed by the grace of God and made a vessel fit for the master's use. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Paul says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to think anything of ourselves. Our adequacy, King James says, our sufficiency and ministry comes from God. Folks, if God starts to use you to have a positive impact in the life of your mate, in the life of your children, give glory to God. When you see them pursuing God with all of their heart, it should break your heart and humble you. Because you know the context they grew up in. And you should say, God, you did that. It gives credit to God for all of the good things that happen. Now, it's not that it sits back and isn't active. It's active, but it's active in the strength that God supplies, in the capacities, gifts, and abilities that God gives. So Psalm 115.1 puts it in this way, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Do you see? Not to us. If God accomplishes something through you, through your life, just not to me, to him be all the glory. That's the natural response of humility. It can acknowledge that God is working in someone's life, but it realizes that credit for all good things comes from God. Isn't that the way Job was? Job's chapter 1, verse 3. Job was the richest man in the East. 
Job 121, after everything is taken away, what does Job say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. <laughs> that's, the heart, that's the heart of humility. See, the heart of pride says, God, you love, I was living such a good life. It thinks, pride thinks that it earns and deserves benefits. Humility realizes that all benefits are grace gifts from God. And when he gives and when he takes away, he is still God. And he gets full credit for whatever is happening in the context of our lives. Folks, that is a that worship becomes the life of the humble person. Humility is also responsive to God's revealed will, meaning when it hears the word of God, it is directable and teachable. James chapter 4, verse 13. If you're still there, look at what it says. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. If it's what God wants. Not, I'm going to lay out my plan and then check with God about it. No, I'm going to check with God and then lay out the plan for my life. Humility is responsive to the revealed will of God. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2 says this. God is the one who is high and exalted over Israel, but to this one he looks. He's the, the king of the world. He's the creator of the universe. He's exalted over all of it. But there is someone who gets his attention. And it is the one who has a broken and contrite heart and who trembles at his word. The individual that says, God, today, I want to live your truth. I want to live in obedience to your plan and your directive in the context that I am living in, marriage, with my children, in the world, whatever the situation is. God, today, I want to resist my tendency to do with my marriage what I want to do with it. I want your will. I want your plan. The person who hears the word of God has a commitment to obey it, and who trembles at it. You know what God says? That person has my active gaze upon their life. I will support that person. I will strengthen that person. I will help that person. So the one who was broken, humble in heart, and who trembles at the word of God, ask yourself this question. In what area in my life right now am I being tempted to disobey God, to reject his will, his plan for my life. Because the one that God looks to and helps and supports and sustains is the one who is committed to obeying him, even when it leads them into difficult, trying circumstances. Humility is responsive to the revealed will of God. Another thought is this. Humility invites God's active and powerful presence. Go back to James chapter 4 now in verse 6. Humility invites God's active and powerful presence. James 4, verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. That is why scripture says, when we go back to this verse, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord. And what will he do? 
He will lift you up. So as I actively pursue humility, it invites God's active and powerful presence in our lives. Second Chronicles 6, 16, 9, a verse that most of us know. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. What's he looking for? He's looking for someone whose heart is humble towards him, through whom he can show himself strong. You see, folks, when we come to God and we say, God, I, I am going to actively depend on your strength and on your power. God, the text says, is scanning the earth. And when he sees that person, the Bible says he sets his gaze on that person and he begins to use that person for his glory. When pride is put out of our life and when we begin to embrace humility for the glory of God, we capture his active gaze because Andrew Murray puts it this way. He says the one indispensable condition of true fellowship with Jesus is humility. The one indispensable condition of true fellowship with Christ is humility. Folks, I believe that's why, recorded in the Gospels, on three occasions, Jesus confronts the self-seeking, self-promoting pride of his disciples. Why? Because if you are proud, you cannot be a disciple of Christ. I need to make a decision to pursue humbly and earnestly a heart that is yielded completely to God and that demonstrates that yieldedness by being responsive to His will so that when I am responsive to His will, I enjoy His active presence in my life. Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, nothing sets a Christian so much out of the devil's reach as humility. You want to get away from Satan? You want to experience victory over persistence in your life? You want to overcome deep-rooted battles in your spiritual life? Nothing will set you so far out of the reach of Satan as will humility. Because you know the only place you can really find true humility in this life is at the foot of the cross of Christ. And as one writer has said, you can't stand beside the cross and be proud. You see, pride and humility, are, they're mutually exclusive. They don't abide simultaneously in an individual. They can't be there at the same time. Either I am humble or I am proud. And if I am humble, I have the active gaze of God upon my life. I have a heart that is committed to obedience. I give glory to God for the good things that are occurring in my life. Do you see? You see, if I'm contemplating sin in my life, what am I doing? I'm back in the garden. I'm harboring pride. I'm feeding pride. I'm thinking about what's going to make me happy, not what will glorify God and bring benefit to those around me and in my family. And so we need to be very, very careful that we take Edward's advice and we set ourselves apart and out of the reach of Satan by pursuing and cultivating humility. And then this humility frees us for effective service. James 4 and verse 10. Humble yourselves therefore before the Lord and He will lift you up. He's decidedly opposed to pride. He helps those who are humble. He comes to the aid of those who are humble. As I was studying through this text, I could not escape thoughts about John 13. And I want to turn there as we close today and as we prepare our hearts for communion. Gospel of John, chapter 13. If you want to turn there with me. fascinating text that all of us are familiar with. It's the eve of the crucifixion. Christ's ultimate self-humbling, self-effacing sacrifice. Takes the towel, wraps it around himself after disrobing, 
takes a basin of water and a towel and is preparing to wash the feet of his disciples. Why? Because it never entered the mind of one of them to wash each other's feet. That's why. Because within them was this insidious, hard-to-admit, self-promoting pride. It never entered their minds. So Jesus disrobes, takes on a towel, form of a servant, and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Folks, humility will do this for you. It will release you into effective service for the glory of God. It'll kill resistance in your life in terms of serving God. Because it won't be about you. It won't be about what others, others think or the people involved. It will be about making a choice like Christ to serve people that didn't want to serve. Do you understand that? This is the group of men that a week before were arguing about which one is greatest. That's why none of them ever thought of taking off the robe and washing each other's feet. If Jesus had requested them to wash his feet, they probably would have gladly done it. But that would not have been stunning because they did call him Lord. But when he's done washing their feet, what does he say? If I, your Lord and Master, wash your feet. Shouldn't you have that same type of humility that will release you, that will free you to wash the feet of people who have trashed your plan, who have deeply negatively affected your plan? Would you serve like that? So in this text, I mean, the, the, the first main thing I see is this humility freeing for effective service and love towards others. Do I put others first in that kind of a way? But I think there's something else, and this will be the last thing I'll share with you. I think there's something else that humility does, and it comes out in this story. Humility frees us to admit a full awareness of the depths of our sin. Okay, now remember, pride causes me to cover, to minimize, to shift blame for my sin, right? That's what pride does. Pride does not want to say, you know what, that was totally, totally my fault. Pride's always looking for an out because it, what, its ultimate goal is self-glorification. If I admit I was wrong, that doesn't help me. It doesn't give me a better reputation. This text is fascinating to me in John 13 because as Jesus is going around washing the feet of the disciples, and folks, think of this, of Judas. Okay? Anybody have a Judas in their life? You know, my first response is, you don't. As far as I know, you don't have someone that's taken your life. I mean, you have people that hurt you badly. But this takes it a level deeper. He comes to Simon Peter. And Peter, Peter says this, Lord? And you can see him pulling his feet back because they're reclining at a flat table, Asian culture, Near Eastern culture. Pull their legs back. He's like, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? I don't think so. And Jesus says something to Peter that I think for him is absolutely devastating to his pride. Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. What does that mean? Peter, if you don't let me cleanse your feet, Meaning, if you don't let my life of service meet your life of sinfulness, if you don't let righteousness and humility 
collide with your pride and sin, you have no part. They say, Tim, why are you amping it up? Why are you, why are you taking the statements up a little bit? Because I think what happens next in the text tells me why Jesus said that. Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. What's Peter's response? What does he say? Then, Lord, not just my feet, but my head and my hands also. What is he asking for? He's asking for a complete bath. Why? Because his, I don't need your help. You're the Lord. Lords don't do that. Pride. Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. And I, I think it, personally, this, my conviction is, at that moment, the crosswork of Christ, which has been repeated continuously, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life a ransom for many. Peter's like, Lords, don't do that. Lords don't serve. And Jesus impresses upon Peter a little bit further. Peter, if you don't let the Son of Man serve you, ultimately by what? His death on the cross. If you will not see his death as the only adequate, sufficient payment for your sin, you've got nothing to do with me. Peter, if you think you can always pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and fight the fight on your own, then you have no part in me, Peter. And what's Peter's response? then I want you to completely affect my life. I want you to wash all of me, the head, the hands, the feet. This is a picture of a total commitment to Christ. Finally. Folks, if I'm humble, here's what I will do. I will freely admit my sin. I will freely confess my sin to God. I will not be able to hide it and justify it because that's what pride does. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus, if you're here this morning and you want a heart change, you want to defeat uh, pride in your life, go to the place where pride cannot be present. Go to the cross. Go to the place where the Son of Man laid down His life as the ultimate act of service to pay the price for your sin. And for every Christian here this morning, if you want God to fire up humility in your life and free you, to serve others and to glorify Him, to see Him as the source of all things, to freely admit your sin and all those kinds of things, to follow Him and obey Him, get back to the cross. Because at the cross, He will devastate your pride. And He will promote within your heart and in your life a, a beautiful humility. If there's a videotape from the New Testament, I would like to see, I guess in some senses, that's one that I would like to see, John 13. Show me that. Show me Peter crossing the threshold where he realizes that, Lord, if you don't wash my feet, I have no part in you. I want everything to do with you. I want your work on the cross to be applied to my life to pay the price for my sin. I would love to see that moment of transition when Peter just came alive in faith. And then what happens? <laughs> Next day, what does he do? He denies Christ. He thought he could do it. <laughs> he wanted to do it. It's not until he sees the resurrected Christ, his Redeemer, his Savior, who had paid the price for his sin, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Not until he saw that Jesus did Peter become a lit, fervent, humble servant of the body of Christ. A changed man. By what? By a choice? No, I don't think so. I don't think the Christian life is about tenacious choices. 
think the Christian life is about yielding ourselves to the Spirit of God in specific areas like this. Romans 8.13 says, if by, the, if by the flesh you seek, or, or if by the flesh you seek to put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will die. But he says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Let's see the difference in Peter's life is Acts 2, isn't it? When the Spirit of God comes in, takes up residence in a converted man and produces in his heart a deep humility that causes him to cry out for the glory and help of God. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?